Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. This morning in our study of Luke, we begin what is often called the Passion Narrative. The account of Jesus' arrest and trial and suffering and crucifixion. And normally the church in its calendar focuses on this part of Jesus' earthly life during Lent. It begins on Ash Wednesday, which this year is March the 9th, and goes until uh, Easter. But Luke has much more to say about Jesus' passion than what we could fit in six weeks of Lent. And providentially, we come to the beginning of this account this morning, an account that's going to continue through all of chapter 22 and chapter 23, fairly lengthy chapters, um, so that without trying to really manipulate things, it appears, as I count up, that if we just continue our study of Luke as we do week by week, we may end up with the account of Jesus' resurrection coming to us on Easter morning, which would be great if it works out that way. And if it doesn't, we uh, may hear of Jesus' crucifixion on Easter morning. I don't know. We'll see how that goes. And so we press on in our study of Luke, recognizing that we're at the beginning of this account, which is the purpose of the whole book. Indeed, the events which Jesus said were the purpose of his whole coming into the world. So let me read it. Luke 22, we're going to look at the first 23 verses this morning. Now the feast of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priest and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparation for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourself. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. There are two things going on in this text. The first one is this. 
that the wicked plot to destroy Jesus. The wicked plot to destroy Jesus. You know, we've heard of Jesus dying on the cross so many times that we may have sanitized it a bit, gold-plated it to make it fit the church decor. But if we really ponder the events described for us here, we can understand how brutal was this conspiracy against Jesus. It was as brutal as any terrorist assassination plot that we might read about in the news. It involved esteemed public figures plotting murder behind the scenes. It involved a friend selling out his best friend and mentor. It it was nothing short of a satanic conspiracy to bring down the kingdom of God. So let's look at the participants for a moment. First of all, we see Satan was behind this plot against Jesus. Of course, no one believes in the devil anymore, which makes it really easy for him to function in the world. But he was the mastermind of this plot. This is part of the cosmic struggle that's been going on since before the earth was created between God and, uh, and the evil one, Satan, Lucifer, the devil. This is part of that struggle that we saw at first in the Garden of Eden, resulting in the sinful fall of humanity and the resultant curse upon the whole earth. This was a continuation of Jesus, of Satan's assault on Jesus in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry, when Satan could not overcome him and could not get him to cave into his temptation. It's, we, we read that he left him looking for a more opportune time, and this is the more opportune time. This struggle between Jesus and Satan is a struggle for dominion over the world. Satan won that struggle in the garden, and as a result, the world was his to rule. But God sent his son to redeem his creation and to save a world of rebels. That's the promise for which Jesus was born. But it will be a bloody battle which Jesus will appear to lose when he gets to the cross. But this satanic plot doesn't play out like we might expect. There's no wicked Osama bin Laden here in the story. There's no Adolf Hitler. There's no uh, uh, Joseph Stalin. There's no Paul Pot. Satan uses the most unexpected people. He used esteemed religious leaders to carry out his plot. Stephen Cole begins his study of this section with these striking words. Religion is one of the greatest forces for evil in the world. Satan has probably done more to damage genuine Christianity through religion than through blatant wickedness or any other evil. In fact, the greatest crime in history came about when Satan used a very religious man to betray the Son of God into hands of other religious men who murdered him. So there's Satan. But then besides Satan, we read that the chief priests and the teachers of the law are in on this conspiracy against Jesus. Now we looked at the identity of these folks a little bit last Sunday night, for these are the ones uh, to to whom Herod sent uh, the Magi, or Herod the Magi went to uh, find out where the Messiah was to be born. And he'll be born in Bethlehem, they said. 
So let me talk about who these people are a little bit. You probably heard of the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling council of Israel. Well, the Sanhedrin is made up of three elements. It's made up of the chief priests who were in charge of the temple worship in Jerusalem, the teachers of the law, sometimes called the scribes or the lawyers, who were the biblical scholars, and the, te- the elders of the people, who were the heads of the families, the clans of Israel. Now, the chief priests were the most political of the three groups. They were mostly Sadducees, they, uh, who perceived God's kingdom coming not through some supernatural act on some Messiah's part, but coming primarily through political cooperation with the Romans. In fact, the chief priests were so political, they had their own little armed security force. Later we'll see when Jesus is arrested in the garden, it's not the Romans who come, it's not Roman soldiers who arrest him, it's the temple guard with the chief priest. So these two groups, the chief priest who were in charge of the Jewish people and responsible for their spiritual care, and the teachers of the law, the biblical experts tasked with guarding and proclaiming God's word, these two groups conspired together to rid the nation of Jesus. This is an astonishing thing. This is like if the ministerial association of the area banded together with the theological faculty of some seminary around and all came up together with a murderous conspiracy to kill off God's Messiah. There's no question about their intentions. They wanted to get rid of Jesus, it says in verse 2. That had been their goal for a long time. We read about it back in chapter 19. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. We read it again in chapter 20. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately, but they were afraid of the people. And why did they want to get rid of Jesus? Well, for many reasons. But his whole view of the Messiah... And, and, and the kingdom of God was not political as they expected, and they hated him for that. And his no-nonsense teaching confronted them with their own pride and their own hypocrisy, and they hated him for that. And his popularity with the people made them terribly jealous, and they hated him for that. And so the leaders of Israel plotted wickedness against Jesus. Oh, the hypocrisy of these leaders is stunning. They were all concerned about ceremonial cleanliness, while their actions were full of evil and corruption. John tells us that later on in the story, they refused to enter Pilate's judgment hall, where they had sent Jesus, hopefully to have him condemned, because they didn't want to be defiled, so that they couldn't eat the Passover feast. When Judas threw the money back later on, they couldn't use it and put it in the, temple, uh, in the temple treasury because it was blood money. But it was blood money that they had conspired to, to spend to get Jesus murdered. Still, these men thought they were holy in God's sight. When in reality, they were wicked men 
plotting evil against the Christ. People, we need to understand that religion is often the enemy of the gospel. Religion, by its very nature, promotes the idea of man making himself acceptable before God. Now, in order to do that, we have to reduce God down to something less than absolutely holy, or we could never stand before him. And we have to make our sin uh, uh, considerably less sinful than it really is. Otherwise, we could never stand in his presence. But when people get really serious about whatever religious scheme they have, when they really pursue it relentlessly, it naturally makes its adherents uh, uh, proud, proud of their achievements, proud of being better than others who are irreligious. And so when the gospel of grace appears, as it did in Jesus, it necessarily confronts this pride of self-righteousness, shows it to be a sham, and, and, and uh, it announces that the religious are really no better than the irreligious. And suddenly, all the piety and tolerance and charity, which religion was thought to kindle, becomes offense and bitterness and hatred and resolve to resist such a gospel. That was Jesus' experience with the religion of the Jews as as what it had become. And it is true today in our experience with the religions of the world, including much of what calls itself Christianity but will not have a gospel of grace. The wicked, especially the self-righteous, plot to destroy Jesus. Well, there's one other player here, and that's Judas Iscariot. The Jewish leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowds. It was Passover time. People were everywhere. They were all excited about Jesus, so they would have to wait till after Passover to deal with him. And then one day, as we read here, beyond their wildest dream, in walks Judas, offering to privately deliver Jesus into their hands. And one of the most striking statements of the whole text, verse 5 says, they were delighted and glad to give him the money. Can you imagine this? The leaders of Israel, the teachers of the scriptures, those in charge of the worship of the people, celebrating at the success of an assassination plot. And can you imagine Judas, one of the twelve apostles, betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver? As Fred Craddock reminds us, here's one, Judas, who was chosen after Jesus prayed all night to be in the inner circle of Jesus. He was taught and then sent to minister with apostolic authority. He enjoyed the same success as the others on those missions to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. He was in every sense an apostle. Indeed, verse 21 makes clear that Judas even sat at the Last Supper with Jesus, eating the bread 
and drinking the wine. And according to John's account, having Jesus wash his feet. Judas was one of the most trusted of the 12 apostles. He held and controlled all the money for all of their ministry. Even as he left to betray Jesus, right after Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and out walks Judas, the rest of them can't imagine who it might be. It never occurs to them it could be Judas because he was such a trusted apostle. So why did he do it? The text makes clear that Satan entered him, but that does not make Judas guiltless. He freely betrayed the Lord. In fact, in verse 22, Jesus says, Woe to him who betrays the Son of Man. And yet, as we search for some rational cause, we don't find much. The only thing the scripture tells us is that as he kept the money for the ministry of Jesus and the twelve, Unbeknownst to them, he was in the habit of dipping into the funds for his own benefit. Remember when Mary poured out expensive perfume at Jesus' feet? Luke or John records that. Judas objected. That perfume is worth a whole year's wages. It could have been given to the poor. But John, in writing this, reports, quote, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief a keeper of the money bag who used to help himself to what was put in it. And now, here, for a mere 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, Judas betrayed Jesus, turning him over to those who he knew intended to kill him. We tend to assume that Judas' motivation must have been much more complex something far greater than just the money. And people have searched for such a motive and speculated as to what it might be. But don't miss the danger of the little betrayals, folks. Judas just didn't decide one day to go and betray Jesus. He had betrayed him lots of times, little by little, time after time throughout his ministry. We tend to dismiss those little betrayals as meaningless. I mean, what's a little white lie? What's a little fudging of the numbers? What's a little unresolved conflict with our spouse? What's a little moral lapse? But the Spirit reminds us that those who live that way, who walk according to the flesh, as we read this morning, who have their minds set on the desires of their flesh, they will die. And Judas died. A broken, hopeless man, he committed suicide when he realized what he had done. But you see, it didn't begin with Satan wrestling him to the ground and making him uh, betray Jesus. Oh, no. It began with Judas growing comfortable with little sins, gratifying his own desires. Until one day, the promise of a pocket full of money was enough to entice him to join the wicked in a conspiracy to destroy Jesus. As Fred Craddock concludes, there would be no value in attempting a new theory to explain Judas. 
The church is at its best when it stops asking, why did Judas do it? And instead examines its own record of discipleship. So here there's a great conspiracy afoot. Satan working through Judas and the Jewish leaders. But Jesus is not a helpless victim here. Our text tells us of another greater agenda that's driving events here. And that brings us to our second point. Jesus pursues a plan to save us. Jesus pursues a plan to save us. When we think about evil plots against someone, we automatically assume that either the victim is unaware of the plot and so goes merrily on his way to his doom, or if he knows, he is frantic, looking for a place to hide, looking for a way of escape. And this sells a lot of movies, as we see movie trailers, of people frantic because of some danger, some threat. But in our text, Jesus, who knows what's going on, is pictured very differently. He is not in a panic at all. He is knowingly, deliberately, lovingly pursuing his plan of salvation. First note his planning for the Passover feast. Jesus sends Peter and John to go make preparations. Daryl Bach, Bach explain, explains that their task seems to be, seemed to be to secure room, to get a lamb slain at the temple, to pick up bitter herbs, to purchase the unleavened bread, and obtain wine for the meal. But they're most concerned to find a place to meet. It's Passover time. There are tens of thousands, perhaps a couple of hundred thousand people in the city, in this little tiny city of Jerusalem. Uh, it's filled with pilgrims, and they're all there to celebrate the Passover. Where on earth are they going to find a place? So Jesus gives them a sign. He says, you go find a man carrying a water jug and follow him. Now, that's significant because normally only women would be carrying water jugs. So when you saw a man carrying one, that was unusual. Follow that man. And when he gets to the house, talk to the owner of the house and tell him the teacher needs a room to, to, have, to eat the Passover with his disciples. And the room will be ready. You see, it seems that G G Peter and John's task, it was not just to make all the preparations but to demonstrate that Jesus, in control of the situation, had provided for all of those things. For according to verse 13, they left and they found everything just as Jesus had told them. Jesus was not at the mercy of those who plotted. He was not helplessly to be a, waiting to be arrested and not knowing when. He was carefully pursuing his plan on his schedule to accomplish our salvation. But we see his plan laid out most clearly in the instruction he gave uh, at this meal. All the gospel writers have some account of the Last Supper, but Luke's account is different than the others in a very peculiar way. According to Luke, Jesus offers his disciples the cup, and then he offers them the bread, and then he offers them the cup. Now, that's quite different from every other account where the, the Lord's Supper involves the bread and the cup. What is happening here? 
Well, this makes some sense if we realize that the Last Supper was both the final Passover meal in which four cups of wine were used and the first Eucharist or Lord's Supper with its bread and wine. So, so, so let's consider these two, the last Passover and the first Lord's Supper. The last Passover part is recorded in verses 14 to 18. It describes a bit of the Passover meal. In this, uh, in this uh, Jesus is uh, looking very expectantly. He says, I have fervently desired to have this meal with you. He's anticipated it. Anticipated for he explains that he will not eat this again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now that makes us think Jesus is looking to the end of time, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he may, may well be doing that. But the way he uses the word until, until, may simply mean this is the last Passover. Philip Ryken points this out. He says, in Hebrew usage, the word until does not necessarily imply that something will happen again. To cite just one example, he says, when the Bible says that the prophet Samuel, quote, did not see Saul again until the day of his death, end quote, this does not mean that Samuel bumped into Saul on the day that he died, but that he never saw him again. Similarly, similarly, Jesus was telling his disciples that this was their last Passover. Soon the sacrament would find its true fulfillment in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they would never have occasion to celebrate it again. Instead, the people of God would celebrate a new sacrament of the new covenant in Christ by eating the bread and drinking the wine of the Lord's Supper. That would explain why this was so important, why Jesus was so eager to eat this Passover with his disciples. For here he sees the fulfillment of the Passover that had been celebrated now for 1,500 years or so. The fulfillment is about to take place tonight. What a great Passover meal. Indeed, all the types and shadows and promises of the Old Testament are about to be fulfilled in my death and resurrection. You see, Jesus is not a frightened victim being hunted down by wicked forces. He's the victor who's pursuing the fulfillment of God's plan to save us. But then in verses 19 and 20, Jesus establishes the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. We read, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup of the new covenant is in my blood, which this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus knew he was about to suffer and die. He had repeatedly predicted that to his disciples. He says it again here in verse 22. He talks about his suffering. But Jesus is eager to explain to them what is about to happen and to give his disciples for all the years to come a way to take hold of this truth. So let's think for a moment about the things that he says here. First, he gives symbols of himself and his suffering. Bread to represent his body. Wine to represent his blood poured out for us. In other words, we can't turn this into some ethereal, intangible concept. No. 
Jesus died in a human body and poured out his real life blood on the ground. That's the heart of our salvation. Secondly, he calls us to remember. The Passover had been a meal of remembrance that had had kept the people faithful all these years. Now the Lord's Supper is to be a remembrance, not of our deliverance from slavery in Egypt, but deliverance from sin. Third, he calls us to do something. He doesn't call us to sit around and have fuzzy thoughts, warm thoughts about him. He doesn't cause us to recite technically correct creeds. He calls us to eat and drink, to take hold of Christ's sacrifice with our hands and our senses, to appropriate him to to ourselves the same way we do our necessary daily food. Fourth, Jesus makes clear, this is all for you. Jesus didn't die for a principle. He didn't die as an example. He didn't die as a martyr for a cause. He died in your place. That requires eternal thanksgiving. That's why we call the Supper the Eucharist. That's a word, thanksgiving. The thanksgiving. And finally, Jesus says he's established in a new covenant in his blood. God had promised in Jeremiah 31 and other places that the day would come that he would establish a new covenant, a covenant of reconciliation, of intimate knowledge of, of God, a covenant wherein God's law was written on, on our hearts, not on external uh, tablets of stone, a covenant of continual forgiveness of sins. Now, all the covenants God had ever made had to be ratified by the shedding of blood, and this covenant was no different. But this covenant was ratified by nothing less than the blood of the Son of God. You see, this covenant does not for one second depend on what we can produce, on our performance. It stands ratified, guaranteed by what Jesus has done in pouring out his lifeblood for us. All God's covenants were an expression of his grace, but never did his grace shine as brightly as it does here. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus made sure his disciples understood for all ages what he was about to do. He was pursuing God's plan to save us all the way his death on the cross. Things are often not as they seem. And this is one of those times. As the wicked plotted to destroy Jesus, it appeared that Satan had won the cosmic battle. It appeared that Jesus' hope of being the Messiah had been thwarted. It appeared that Jesus would be destroyed by forces beyond his control. Ah, but in reality... Jesus was pursuing God's plan to save us. He controlled the events, the timing, even of his suffering. He made clear that his suffering was the end, the fulfillment of the Passover, and the beginning of the covenant king of the coming kingdom. No longer would his people offer sacrifices for their sins. He was atoning for them once for all. Never again would we have to wonder if we've done enough. By the shedding of his blood, God is satisfied forever. In Christ, we stand clean before God 
accepted in his beloved son. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for the Savior, who, uh, when pursued, Lord, was not frantic, but was working his sovereign plan to save us. Our, and that is our only hope, even still today, all these years later. So, Lord, I pray that we would not uh, take it lightly, that we would not tolerate a little uh, unfaithfulness, that we would not, Lord, turn it into a meaningless religion. But, Lord, help us to walk with you and to believe you and to trust you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.